You're listening to All Things Video, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Teresa Phillips, co-founder and CEO of Spherix. Teresa, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited that we get a chance to chat today. I thought we'd start off by uh, traveling a little bit back in time. You started your career uh, with the U.S. Army. So I'm curious, you know, what called you to serve? I did. It, it, it was a, many, many moons ago. Uh, I mean, it was kind of a confluence of factors, really. Uh, you know, I grew up in Kansas and uh, on, on a farm in a rural area. And so uh, being of service, you know, being called to duty and to serve your community, whether, you know, police officers or teachers, they're always well respected. And in fact, uh, we took the ASVAB, the military entrance exam in high school, even they'd come, the recruiters would come. And so I was, uh, it was always in the back of my mind. And then I was, uh, when I was in college, I had a basketball and uh, academic scholarship. Uh, and I was uh, working uh, at night at Walmart in the automotive department just to pay my way through school. And I just felt so much older than everybody, uh, having had grown up real fast. And so decided I wanted to get out of Kansas and I wanted to travel. And so just, it, it was kind of a, on a whim, but I uh, one night enlisted and left, you know, just like within a week uh, to boot camp. So wow. kind of a spur of the moment, but always something back in the back of my mind, but I'm very proud of my military service uh, and very proud of the other uh, veterans around the world. That's incredible. Well, thank you for your service. And it, I saw that you had quite uh, an illustrious career in the military, it seemed like. Spent some time with the Pentagon. Tell us a little bit more about some of the other work that you did while you were in the service. Yeah, I did have a very unique, uh, you know, service stint. It was, uh, I was in back at the end of the Cold War uh, and I did, I served in the Pentagon for a few years and then I wanted to go overseas. And so I reclassified to become kind of a, a general officer's uh, assistant, if you will, personal assistant. And I was fortunate to, um, go to Shape Belgium, uh, where NATO was, and served five years there, uh, working for General Galvin, who was the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, and also the uh, Commander-in-Chief of Europe. So he had two million troops under him. And it was just a wonderful experience being able to live and work with uh, members of all the NATO nations and really learn and understand culture. And then, um, so I spent seven years in, and then I, and then I got out. Amazing. How's uh, your French, or, or perhaps your Dutch? So French, yeah, I did take uh, French um, uh, a long time ago, and it was pretty decent back in the day. We could get around, uh -huh. and this actually was before the EU, so it really was local languages, and you had to have your passports going from country to country, and so it wasn't uh, English wasn't as prominent back then. But um, yeah, it was it was okay, not so much anymore. <laughs> yeah, you and me both. Well, that's awesome. So, what did you do after you finished your uh, tours of duty? So I went back to uh, the DC area, which is, uh, you know, my first duty station and, you know, and then just got into technology. I knew that um, I'd worked with ARPANET from the service and sending classified data and knew that once the uh, internet had an interface, uh, we could, it would be a big deal. And um, so we also had bulletin boards back then. So it was like, you know, CompuServe and AOL and other things, but uh, I got into product management, got into technology, and I wanted to be in the uh, specifically in the internet space. Fantastic, yeah. And you you had an early kind of entree into media and entertainment as a group VP at Time Warner Cable, and then later Yahoo and operations and business intelligence. 
Um, what was it that helped you gravitate towards this unique combination of technology and media? Yeah, so I mean, you know, I love technology and always have. And then, uh, you, you know, I love building things and creating things. So kind of product management was, as, was, was very interesting to me. Um, and then, you know, but I ended up, I say that, um, you know, ended up more in operations because, you know, nobody, it was a job nobody wanted. And, and you know, I was always first in the office and last to leave. And so uh, really kind of, um, you know, built a career out around getting stuff done and learned a lot about leadership in the service. And so, so that's, um, you know, just getting in the, in, in the internet and uh, moving on, um, you know, when the internet came and that was, of course, it was media. And so, yeah, I, my, one of my big executive positions was at Time Warner when we were starting Roadrunner and we had to, um, you know, roll out high-speed data across the country and stuff. And then on, on to Yahoo. I think I was an early Roadrunner customer way back in the day. <laughs> I was a kid, but uh, I certainly remember it. Which, which, uh, which community, which territory? So I grew up in Bakersfield, California. No, I was going to say Bakersfield, yep. you know, because we, we did uh, light up Bakersfield back in the day. Yes. Yep. The glamorous uh, uh, upraising of, uh, you know, a kid whose parents work in oil and gas. Spent a lot of time between yeah. Texas and Bakersfield, California. Uh, yep. Got it. Very good. So um, in, in 2006, right, you go on, you launch your first venture. So you founded a company called Grasper, which was a video marketplace focused on social learning. I'm curious, you know, what inspired you to start that business? Yeah, so I mean, I, you know, after leaving Yahoo, I'd never started a company. I'd been part of startups, but I'd never done it on my own and wanted to do that. And uh, I just felt like, you know, we all have experiences and, and knowledge and skills and passions that if we could figure out a way to share those with each other, that uh, we'd be better off for it, right? So uh, it was kind of a social learning platform uh, where we used video as a way to, um, you know, kind of capture people's uh, know-how and, um, and, and create a video marketplace. Now that was before YouTube uh, was, you know, uh, acquired by Google, they were just getting off the ground and it turned out to be, the video turned out to be kind of a winner take all market. And then we also were up against, um, you know, the recession of 2008. So, mm, sure. so it, was, it was kind of a fast thing. A <laughs> challenging time period for sure, but also kind of this foundational time for video on the internet and kind of the evolution of the uh, streaming economy and everything else we have today. Had you always considered yourself an entrepreneur? What, what drove you to say, hey, I want to take the leap and start my own business? Yeah, well, yeah, not exactly. I guess, um, you know, I've, I've always, like I said, I've always wanted, I've always loved building things and creating things and always had a big imagination and being in the military, you know, learned a lot about leadership and organizational development. And so, you know, how to organize and mobilize people and, and, and get stuff done. And so, you know, the combination of those two things, wanting to create and then also wanting to be a part of, of um, you know, building organizations kind of led me to leadership or led me to entrepreneurship. And I guess I think um, looking back though, I was always, when I was younger, I was always as, uh, starting kind of my own little uh, ventures and trying to make a buck. Yeah. My first, uh, my first venture, I think, was I had a fishing worm farm. And um, and so I'd sell fishing worms for 60 cents a dozen. Nice. Would, yeah. So we had this uh, bathtub out in the pasture and I would, you know, keep the fishing worms out there and then go out in the morning and feed them coffee grounds. And uh, then I'd give rides to kids uh, my, on my mule and buggy and 
you know, around town and, and all kinds of things. So I um, love that. Yeah. Very entrepreneurial, even from an early age. That's awesome. <laughs> so what was the hardest part of being a first time founder, right? When you start this business and you've got to figure it out, build the airplane right in midair, as they say, what was, what were the challenging aspects of it? Yeah. So, you know, I think being a first time founder, it's about uh, not knowing what you don't know. And, you know, when I was raising capital, uh, VCs gave a lot of, uh, ascribed a lot of credit to value to, you know, serial entrepreneurs. And I never understood why. I always thought, well, you know, they're rewarding them for failing. And so, you know, how can that be still important? But after having done it, uh, I certainly understand it. Um, you just learn so much about yourself and learn so much about, you know, how, how to grow a business. And, and I'd say that, but in the process, uh, probably the hardest thing for me was just balancing uh, the tension between intuitively knowing and instinctively knowing how to build a company and build a product versus what the uh, VCs wanted you to do. Mm. And what I mean by that is, you know, by the time that I started Grasper, I had already been an executive at Time Warner and Yahoo and led really large teams. And, and, and so I knew that, you know, how to do that basically, you know, with, you know, building foundation and infrastructure and hiring and, and organizing and, and uh, focusing and getting stuff done. But it's not on the same time scale as what the VCs do. So if you think about their motivation, you know, 90% of companies fail and they got to figure out which one is going to be a winner and they want the other 90% to fail as fast as possible, right? And so they're just constantly pushing you uh, to, to try to figure out if you're going to be that 10% or the 90%. And it, it, it sometimes, it, it all the time, creates tension between you know, kind of what you know to be the, the way to build a company. You don't have the luxury of that time. And, and also, I think what it does is um, it, you, you have vanity metrics. And so back with Grasper, the, the metrics were eyeballs and traffic. So there were a lot of other entrepreneurs using their capital they raised to buy traffic to their websites. And so it was really artificial. And there'd be, you know, kind of blips in the traffic. And it wasn't sustainable, obviously. But yet, to the outside world or to the other VCs, it looked like they were gaining traction in the marketplace. And so it was just this constant tension of, of knowing intuitively what to do, but yet feeling the pressure of, of doing it differently. Yeah, right. The, the venture uh, investment creates this economic imperative, right? So you have to start playing the venture math game where it's okay, raise and then grow as quick as possible, raise again in 18 to 24 months. And then you have to kind of hope that you're going to have this huge outcome that will return the fund. And those that aren't doing that, right, don't get as much of the time and attention. And so the incentives are, yeah, spend the money, right? Grow as quickly yeah. as you can. And if that works out, great. If it doesn't, that's okay, because we're just trying to place a lot of bets and see, you know, the one, two, maybe three that pay off. Yeah, that's, that's so true. And in fact, once they've determined that, you know, that uh, you're not going to be part of the 10%, then they want you to, you know, Goodbye. go as fast as you can. Yeah, <laughs> let's spend it as fast as you can, because then you're off their books and you uh -huh. don't have to. They don't have to give you any time. Now, I mean, this was an area or a period of time when, I mean, 2008, when Lehman Brothers crashed and, and I mean, it just evaporated overnight. Everybody did, uh, all the startups did. Um, but still, yeah, there's, there's you're, you're right. There, sometimes the incentives between the VCs and the um, entrepreneurs are misaligned. And that's in fact, one of the reasons why we haven't raised capital uh, series A or series B capital at my company currently. Good for you. That is very challenging. We're the same way. My, my business, Paladin's Bootstraps, and uh, it gives you a much different discipline, um, pros and cons, right? With every scenario, but uh, it's always been a good choice for us. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
I'm curious. So you you spend a lot of time in corporate America, right? You mentioned Time Warner, Yahoo, and then you go build a startup. How hard was it to transition from this massive, you know, these massive enterprises to early stage company? Yeah, not too difficult, uh, you know, because both those companies were pretty entrepreneurial, and we were in an industry that was, you know, growing and evolving, right? So it was it was media was still very very new. And, uh, and then the way that the company, especially Yahoo, the way that it was organized was that each business division was kind of its own mini startup. And the, the, the group that I was recruited to uh, be a part of the leadership team was, was the broadband and consumer services group. And so we, you know, I was hired uh, to come in and build out operations for that group. And so we did all the contracts with SBC and Rogers and Verizon and AT&T and things. And so, um, so they, we were kind of these little mini businesses and we did have to start, start from the beginning. And the same thing with Time Warner, you know, we were building DSL and or high-speed data, rather not DSL, that was the competitor, uh, the high-speed data. And um, so it was always, I've always found myself in kind of positions, whether they're in big companies or small companies in terms of building something. Very good. Uh, speaking of building something, right, you went on to co-found Spherix, which is a technology company that helps media and entertainment industry track, monetize, and culture fit content for international markets. What attracted you to that problem specifically? So I, I knew that um, once, you know, with, with video, uh, streaming video, OTT, uh, once the market got to a point where international growth was uh, imperative for success, that we were going to have a culture problem, right? And I knew that from, you know, having lived uh, in, in, you know, Europe for five years. And it, it, it was even different than living abroad, right? Because like I said, you know, I lived with the members of the NATO nation, 16 different, you know, it was kind of a, you know, a, a melting pot, uh, but it was very distinct. And even though we all spoke English, I can assure you that we didn't uh, always understand each other. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Uh, whether it's the traditions or the gestures or the dialogue, um, it, was, it was very different. So I knew that that once um, we, you know, once companies were starting to distribute internationally, that uh, there was going to be a big issue with culture and how we adapt our titles uh, so that we can you know, resonate with local audiences as well as uh, how they can uh, remain in compliance with just different jurisdictions. Yeah, I, I think we're seeing that play out in real time, right? So in the US, obviously the initial story is Netflix, they're growing, the traditional entertainment industry says, hey, what's this little art upstart? And, and sure, we'll license our content to them. And fast forward to today where you've got all these services, um, the traditional media companies realize it's a fundamental imperative for them to build a direct to consumer business and pivot to streaming pretty quickly. Um, but you look at some of the growth recently, a lot of Netflix's growth is coming from international. Disney Plus is reporting these big sub increases, but a lot of that's coming out of India. And now they're emerging growth markets like Thailand and Malaysia, where they're bundling with Hotstar. Um, so obviously international is important, right? And how do these entertainment companies think about navigating that problem as we move into these other cultural landscapes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't think in the early stages they think much about it, actually. Um, they, they don't know a lot about it. It's a black box to most. And uh, so they don't, again, they don't know what they don't know. Um, and so I think they're executing on a strategy. It's still so early in this game. And, you know, they're, like you said, that they're, you know, kind of verticalizing their supply chains and taking all their branded content and putting it behind a paywall and, and, and trying to acquire subs as quickly as possible, because that is the, the game right now. And, and, 
you know, research shows that, uh, well, a few things, right? One is that during the pandemic, while consumers uh, did subscribe to multiple, you know, services, at, you know, up to the point where there was five, now as people are getting out, they're kind of reallocating their entertainment budgets. And so I think we'll settle in about two or three. And, and that's going to differ quite a lot, you know, from country to country or region to region. Um, but, but still, it's, um, it's whoever has, you know, acquires these subs first, they're less likely to churn off their primary um, service. And so, you know, the, the people that come on as, in terms of stacking are going to be the ones uh, that, 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 that they're going to cycle between. And, and that's a, another big problem is the cycling. And what we used to see a lot in AOL in the early days was when they got the, the you know, they'd send out all the DVDs. If you don't have content on an ongoing basis, then people will just cycle off of your service until your you know, the next season of something they want to watch um, is released. And so it's really important that they that they grow uh, as fast as they can, but also adapt their content so that it resonates with local audiences. Yeah. Do you have any examples of uh, maybe times where you've seen content that isn't quite culturally appropriate for some of these other uh, foreign markets? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it happens every day, all the time. We don't hear about it a lot here because, you know, most people don't read international press. Uh, that's our core business. So we, we every day, we build newspapers. We call it the Daily Buzz from um, press worldwide, whether that's regulatory or news or, you know, all kinds of um, different issues. And so we see it day in and day out. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of examples. You know, Netflix is, is probably the one pushing the envelope, getting in trouble the most often uh, mm. because they are first and they're they're relatively speaking, they're a pretty, you know, new company uh, relatively in terms of like compared to Disney and their brand. Sure. And so, uh, and even Apple and their brand. And so they haven't been as consistent in terms of um, the, the brand message and the, the tolerance for risk. And so mm. they've they've been inconsistent in how they've, uh, approached localization and culturalization, as well as even how they've approached, you know, uh, taking down controversial content. But um, but but fortunately, they they have paved the way for everybody else, so people can see what works and what doesn't. But just to give you a couple of examples, so there's um, like recently in in Singapore, uh, drugs uh, there's a zero tolerance policy for any sort of drugs, and so Netflix has to remove. They had a cannabis show that they had to take down, and then mm. they had a, a documentary on psychedelics, and they had to take that down as well. Um, you know, any, India is another hot spot where content frequently gets, um, you know, gets penalized and taken down. And uh, New Zealand, Australia, I mean, everywhere there's examples yeah. of urban cultural missteps. Interesting. Yeah. I think about like India and China as, um, you know, we hear a lot about the fact that they're banning entire apps, right? Building their own private version of the internet. And of course that extends to content, right? They're, they're actively policing what uh, comes across their borders because they have, you know, regulations or they have these cultural um, policies as well that they are designed to protect. Um, how much of in, in international markets, are you seeing these American exports be popular, Netflix, Disney Plus, uh, HBO Max versus local competitors? Are you seeing, you know, uh, streaming services in Europe or Asia um, that are catering more to specific local tastes? Yeah, I mean, it, it varies region to region, right? If you look at uh, Europe, for example, uh, you know, the, the pay TV operators have a strong foothold, uh, you know, local regulation. So if you look at the 
pay TV operators, uh, they offer like two or 300 channels in, in like 45, 55 languages at a pretty low monthly fee. And so they don't have the same concept of cord cutting as what we have here in the US. And so it's these, you know, their, their, basic, their basic packages are very affordable and it's also a lot of free, you know, free news and, and free to air broadcast. And so then what you see there are, are um, you know, companies streaming like Netflix and others that don't have access. You know, they don't have that, that, like Apple has the iOS or other device for access. So they end up having to be kind of a channel or be bundled by these pay TV operators. And then you have your, um, your niche uh, SVOD, AVOD platforms as well. But, but Europe pretty much is a, you know, a one, two or three, and then there's a whole long, a long tail. But, it's, um, but you know, usually it's, it's, it's the big ones, the global ones that have the, 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 the most market share. But when you get over to Asia, on the other hand, it's very different. Uh, because of the the different languages and like even in India, there's you know the a lot of the I mean there's like five to eight languages just that that are uh, you know for uh, audio dubs for just films that are released there in Bollywood and things, and so they are mostly accessed via mobile in Asia, uh, but there's a the the local players are highly entrenched and so. Uh, you see Amazon and Netflix and other global players having a very difficult time getting traction in, in a lot of the Asian countries uh, because of that. So it does vary a lot. Yeah. And and speaking of, you know, maybe failing to get traction, one of the things that made me scratch my head recently is Viacom, CBS has been doing this dance with Comcast, NBC Universal, right? Where, you know, maybe they'll end up tying the knot together next year, maybe they won't. But in the short term, they've done some of these partnerships, one of which is, uh, their decision to build kind of a co-branded streaming service in Europe, right? So um, for more context, uh, Peacock and Paramount Plus are relatively subscale, not just domestically, but particularly in Europe. And rather than launch either of those brands independently, uh, they've decided to create Sky Showtime, which is being rolled out in the, in the European market. Um, what was your take on that decision? Is that, is that a good move strategically or is that you know, maybe questionable? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just a matter of uh, you've got, you know, uh, content seeking access and access seeking content, right? And so going back to, you know, Apple, uh, Disney, others that they verticalize the supply chain, they've got the branded content and they've got the access, you know, Disney bought Hulu that had the access. Uh, Apple obviously has the, has the device. And so, you know, Paramount, if you look at their, like the stock, you know, with, uh, I'd argue that CBS and Showtime are better assets than you know, the Paramount assets, but, um, you know, that, but it's, um, um, but so that, so they need, they need access, right? And Comcast, on the other hand, has the access. Uh, they do have, they did buy Sky, they have that access as well, but they need the content. So uh, I think we'll see more bundling along those lines and more consolidation as, you know, as people uh, go international, like the same thing with Roku. I think Roku is a, is a hot target um, just simply because they, they're going to be able to get the access if they get international. Yeah, they've had a really smart kind of channel strategy, right? And um, no one else has been able to really replicate that. So I've been I've been fascinated by the growth of Roku's model, but also by some of these AVOD players. You have kind of the Pluto TVs and the Tubies of the world, some of these free ad-supported services, which are kind of filling the gap um, of, you know, most of the attention gets gets put on the SVOD services here in the US, but there's also this story of you know, the rapid growth of these AVOD players. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you, and like here in the US, you look at the average age of a, of a cable customer is like 59, 
right? And whereas the advertisers are targeting, you know, 18 to 54, so it's outside that window even. So the audience is moving over onto these platforms, right? The, the subscription-based platforms for the most part, you know, one or two or three. Um, and then, you know, the advertising dollars will follow, right? And then you've got, um, you know, this younger generation that's grown up on YouTube for ad-supported. Uh, so I think, I think um, you know, advertising ultimately is gonna have higher ARPU. And I think we're gonna see uh, that grow faster than SMOD. We're already starting to see that shift. You know, you look at Hulu too and, and some of the numbers they've released, they don't do it anymore, but they used to, the fact that they made higher ARPU on their ad supported model than on their on their full, you know, premium. Wow, uh, that's premium. impressive. Yeah, yeah the, the ARPU for um, Hulu is so strong that Hulu makes more money uh, than Disney Plus does, right? People like yeah. look at these sub numbers. Oh, Disney Plus is 100 plus million subs, which is great, right? The service is doing well, but it's ARPU is so low because it's being dragged down by these hot star bundles, which makes sense, right? Right now, the strategy is penetration, growth, international markets totally makes sense. But ultimately, you either have to raise prices, or you have to find a way to, to grow and strengthen ARPU. Hulu obviously has had a lot more time to do that and has the live TV kind of bundling, which helps drive the price point up. Um, but it, it consistently is kind of the jewel, it seems like, in, in Disney's uh, streaming play. Yeah, it is. And that's, and, and that's you mentioned, uh, you know, the hot star, and that is a problem internationally. So it, it isn't just the sub game. The sub game, you know, we don't know when people quote their subs, we don't know what, what the churn looks like. Uh, we don't know what the ARPU looks like. And it varies from company to, or country to country, right? So they've got to find some way to fund all that content they're creating. And, um, you know, otherwise they're going to be, they have a lot of debt on their books, like in the case of Netflix. But uh, the other part of it is, you know, with subscription, they need to have a deep catalog and have alternatives, and especially in between these popular series. And so that's where this, this uh, premium kind of, not premium, but AVOD content comes into play that used to be on, you know, television or broadcast, but now, or linear, now it's moving over to digital. Um, and I think that's, that's the place where um, the, the ad-supported models really, really shine. Yeah. I, I think people forget it's so easy to think, oh, okay, well, yes, we want to watch, you know, House of Cards and uh, Game of Thrones and these like huge original series that everyone loves, uh, which is great, right? Like Mayor of Easttown deserves to win awards and is going to drive people to watch, you know, this incredible content on HBO. But that's not always what we're looking for when we tune on, tune into the TV, right? We want to watch reruns of The Office. And we want to watch, you know, reality shows and cooking shows as Netflix has proved. So there's kind of that diversity in the job to be done of, of television and, uh, and how media and entertainment performs. But um, in addition to thinking about cultural exports, right, of content, so oftentimes these American purveyors shipping content overseas, we're increasingly seeing more imports of content, right? Like Lily Hammer on Netflix, Casa de Papel, um, the, the rise of K-pop, right? And it's, it's uh, prevalence in American music scene. Uh, so obviously the world is shrinking, right, as the internet continues to connect us. How is that playing out in the streaming wars? And why is culture so important in media and entertainment? Yeah, so, so you're right. We're at the very, very early stages of, of content being imported. And, you know, Parasite having done well and, and others, uh, we're not accustomed here in the U.S. to have content uh, dubbed or especially even read subtitles. Uh, we're, starting to, we're starting to do that. And now we can appreciate the quality. We can appreciate the culture. And going back uh, to like a cultural example or a misstep, here in the U.S., like you, um, I don't know if you saw the movie or the film Cuties, which was uh, Mignon's, it's a French film that Netflix released um, a couple of years ago, 18 months ago. 
and they did a faux pas on the artwork. And so the crazy thing was the poster art they used for the release in the US was different than all the poster art they used for every other country. And it was uh, the girls, the young girls dancing. And so the people, you know, a lot of the groups in the US, a lot of uh, religious groups and political groups felt like they were sensationalizing young women and, and sexualizing and sensationalizing. And so there was big backlash. And in fact, it was reported that even their Q4 numbers that year, they had a uh, increase in, in churn just because of that one uh, kind of cultural misstep. And the irony of it is that that, that artwork was just a, just a poor representation of the film itself. It didn't even reflect what the film was about, but it was just a, a, poor, a poor decision there. And then they, you know, Netflix obviously corrected that and, and apologized for that. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting as, as things heat up and um, as content starts to be distributed globally uh, from country to country, region to region. And um, it's, you know, if you think about there's, you know, one title having to go across uh, 246 countries and territories and think about all the, the platforms, you know, whether it's TV or satellite or, you know, um, you know, mobile and devices and, you know, venues across, you know, whether it's you're watching it at home or on an airplane and every, everywhere else you can watch it and then across windows. So it just, um, you know, we're in a unique situation where in our industry where we can create a product one time and service it forever. You know, we, we can relicense that product in perpetuity, but we have to also localize it as we go so that it becomes meaningful to the local audiences. And, um, and, and to talk about, you know, culture a bit, James, you, you asked why, why it's so important. Uh, so we look at culture as really being, you know, our operating system, right? So it, it uh, you know, as humans. And so it, it governs how we think, um, how we behave and how we display emotion. And so everything that we that we you know um, do is is based on our culture, you know how we how we grew up, and it's it's about traditions and culture and values, and it's it's so much more than language. And so if you think about like you know your favorite Chinese restaurant, for instance, you don't love that restaurant because the owner speaks Mandarin. You know it's not about the language; it's about the spices, it's about the way that it's prepared, it's about the, the cultural aspects of that. Fantastic. Yeah. And I love your point about how technology is changing everything, right? It seems like, you know, historically, we've relied on a lot of manual human processes to dub content or to, to add subtitles or localize this content. Does technology um, pose the answer to a lot of these problems in the future? Will we have either, you know, auto captioning is already popular on social platforms? Will that extend to premium entertainment? Are we going to have um, synthetic voice technology and AI basically auto-localizing stuff for us in real time. What do, what do you see coming in the future? Yeah, I mean, we certainly uh, are seeing technology doing all the things you just described, whether it's the, the transcripts or the localization, the synthetic voices. I mean, there's, there's ethical issues around that as well. And so we got to figure it out. It's so new. Uh, it's, but it's, it's still so early. Sometimes you can't uh, like in our business with local age ratings and culturalization, so much of it is context and machines aren't yet able to make the same judgments that humans do. And so what we do is apply uh, machine learning and AI to help kind of uh, expedite or accelerate uh, some of those, um, you know, human driven functions, right? So we use the, the, the human alongside the machines and we, we, we're constantly retraining the humans or, or modifying the machines. And, and so that ultimately we can get there, 
so like as an example, what, what we can do is, is we can detect, um, you know, multimodal in fact, using, you know, analyzing the voice, the closed caption or the, the text, as well as, as the video, the computer vision, we can detect these cultural artifacts and we can classify them. Uh, so we can say, for instance, there's a boy drinking alcohol in front of a, a Hindu temple and the Hindu temple is a sacred object, you know, according to our cultural playbook, that's sacred. And so there's likely to be cultural conflict there, right? So we can, if we can identify these events and then we, with our knowledge of culture, we can classify them and we can use technology to do that. Uh, but the last mile of course is done by humans uh, in, in almost all these things um, in localization and it will be for the foreseeable future. What is coming next? If you had to make three predictions for the future of the space, what do you foresee? Gosh, well, I think that we're going to continue to see more consolidation, right, around content and access. So, um, you know, some of the some of the folks that I think that are at play, I think Roku's got the access; they're building the content. But, uh, and again, they haven't gone international in a meaningful way. So we'll see if they can if they can do that. Um, and you see, you know, Netflix has the content, but not the access. Um, you know, Apple has the access and building the content. You know, you've, you've got players like Lionsgate and Paramount and others that are out there on the content side. So, so I think number one, we'll see uh, more consolidation around that so they can compete with the bigger players like, uh, like you know, uh, Disney and, and Amazon, et cetera. Um, another thing I, I think would be, as we just talked about that, you know, I think the ARPU of Avon uh, will will increase. We'll continue to see that the move there to ABOD just because there's people need deep catalogs. There's substitution. You got the younger generation. You've got um, you know just the the economics of, of international markets and and how you need to you know you're, they're not going to be cutting the cord and and people are only going to subscribe to so many services. So I think we'll see that continue. And then I'd say the last thing is um, you know I think Netflix is either going to spectacularly succeed or spectacularly fail. And what I mean by that is they are so well positioned to become the first and, and only, and nobody else is even close to doing what they're doing, a global television platform. And so they've, they've invested quite a lot in creating content uh, that has originated in various countries and have you know, built you know, cooperative agreements and things uh, with local uh, production you know, um, enterprises and companies. And so, so they'll be the first one to, to actually create um, local programming and then, and then distribute that globally. And if they can crack that nut on how to adapt and localize um, in, 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 in kind of a last, you know, just in time way uh, without being a lag uh, in release from country to country, then just think about how that's going to blow up, right? I mean, and they're spending so much money on original content. So we're either going to see them, you know, figure that out and, um, and, and succeed wildly, or, or they're going to go down the gaming path, perhaps, and get defocused. Or I just wanted to ask uh, you about that. What do you think <laughs> about their foray into gaming? Yeah, I mean, you know, they obviously know more about their business than I do, so it's easy to be an armchair quarterback. Uh, but but I, I was kind of disappointed when I saw them do that, because I think it, 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 it you know, it defocuses. And if you look at you know, just the biggest markets uh, for gaming are in China, Hong Kong, and China just passed a law this week that is limiting gaming, youth gaming to three hours a week. And it's, it's a law now. And so they, they, can't, they can't watch it Monday, can't play any video games Monday through Thursday. 
and Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, they can only do one hour a day and it's enforceable. And so, um, you know, who knows what's going to happen, but anyway, I, I think that, um, Netflix has, has big opportunity, uh, to be that first global platform. And so I was rooting for him, but I, um, I didn't really want to see him get defocused, but you know, they know better than I do. <laughs> Fair enough. And, and now we're also seeing a lot of comparisons between Netflix and YouTube. You, you touched on, right. The growing, uh, ARPU value of, of uh, ad-supported businesses. Is that a fair comparison to, to really contrast YouTube and Netflix? Hmm. No, I don't, I don't think so. Um, I think their, their audience is very different. I think they've got different assets that they can bring to bear. Uh, you look at, if you think at the, at, at the core of what we do, right, it's about um, content discovery and, and YouTube's formula for that is so different than Netflix's you know, and uh, the audience. And uh, yeah, I, just, I think they're very different com companies, very different cultures, different assets. Yeah, yeah, definitely. What does the future hold for Spherix? So we're going to continue, uh, you know, defining the, the new category of culturalization and uh, evangelizing it in the market. Uh, you know, ultimately, I'd like to, you know, the plan is to create a cultural dimension uh, that can be embedded in content and can be affixed to a viewer. And so we can use that to help people find uh, meaningful content. And I think that this, the culture, I think will be as big, if not bigger than geolocation. So I was actually at Yahoo when uh, mobiles became, mobile devices became big, we had geolocation. And it was at that point when we knew that somebody in, in Pasadena who was searching for pizza, we knew they were in Pasadena, California, as opposed to Pasadena, Texas, right? And it just unlocked a whole, you know, new world of opportunity around advertising and placement and, and, and marketing. And I think culture is going to, is going to be that big and bigger because you've got, you know, you've got content and you've got the viewer and you can match those two things up. So, so we're, we're focused on that. We've created the playbook. We think it's the only, only, we know it's the only cultural playbook, um, in, you know, in the world and how to do this. And, and we uh, are excited about using technology and, uh, and our domain expertise and being able to extend that to, to help people find, or help people create and find better content. That's fantastic. Obviously, as we've touched on, it is such a complex ecosystem to navigate from the regulatory frameworks to the cultural context. So getting that right at scale, you know, across all these different markets with different, uh, you know, uh, di different understandings or cultural uh, ideals is is difficult right and so you need this combination of technology and data and then the human element that you guys are bringing to bear that's awesome now obviously yeah. oh go ahead please go ahead i was going to say you're you're right i mean and it's it's um you know it, and it's constantly changing right so every week there's two or three countries that are looking at at changing their laws or or you know enforcing them differently um extending their jurisdiction so it's a it's a very dynamic environment uh and it is about uh, first and foremost, it's about compliance, you know, and if they can't get to a market, then they can't grow. And if they are out of compliance in that market, then they're, the, the sanctions and penalties are everything from, you know, local backlash and bad press to fines, takedown notices, interrogations. And, and these regulators have a very long reach, you know, they can, they can you know, they, they can influence, um, you know, privacy, taxation, you know, other levy, other fees and, and rules and stuff. Uh, but then beyond the, the compliance, it's about finding your customer, finding your market, and making sure that you adapt the content, but you also classify it in a way 
that is at the right age group and it's not artificially high and that you miss out on you know, millions of youth um, you're, that you're trying to target for your content or, or that you kind of throw up your hands and say it's unclassified and then nobody can find it, right? So it's, it's kind of a, a, a multi-step uh, process, but there's, there's you know, wide uh, you know, implications of, of not doing it right. So the cost of doing it right is, is much lower than the cost of getting it wrong. Now, obviously, you're still in the middle of your journey with SphereX, but one of my favorite questions to ask everyone who comes on the show, particularly other entrepreneurs, is if you were to take everything you've learned along the way and you were looking at the white space in the, in the media and entertainment landscape today, if you were going to go out and build a new business, what would you do? Yeah, you're right. I'd build the same business that I'm building. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's We're so, so early and it's, it's, so, it's, it's such a, a green field for us. Um, but if I couldn't build what I'm building today, uh, I'd focus on content discovery. And that's going to be the number one issue. It already is. We just don't know it yet. But imagine in a world where um, we can, you know, we can watch a documentary of somebody in Colombia making coffee or we can watch Japanese anime. And, you know, how do you know, you know, how do you know what content that you want to find, you know, when you don't know that's what's out there? I mean, recommendations and discovery, even in the U.S., is arguably not that great, uh, then what happens when you have all this global content? And so I think that, um, and culture obviously is a big, big dimension there in terms of discoverability that we're working on. But beyond that, you know, I, I, I think we need to, to think, think differently about it more broadly. Uh, we need to figure out how to give the asset signals themselves, because right now, uh, recommendations and discovery is largely based on user behavior and, and social spheres and things, and then this explicit metadata. But the, but the asset itself doesn't give a signal. So there's a lot of other signals. Uh, we can also think about content. Um, and in our business, think about it as you know, evoking emotion. And so to say, OK, um, you know, we, when, we, when we sit down to watch something on a Friday night or a Saturday, you know, we, we want to watch something that's going to um, you know, give us a certain emotion. We want to like, kind of just chill out. We want to see some action. And so then how do you uh, classify that content and, and predict the emotion that it's going to be able to, to, to you know, bring to a particular user. And so there's a lot, a lot of things we can do there, a lot of innovative things we can do in discovery. And um, that's, that's kind of where I'd, I'd go. I love that. Yeah, we, you know, people celebrate Netflix, Spotify, TikTok for pushing this idea of algorithmic driven content recommendations forward. And it's true, right? I mean, we, we have much better recommendations and a lot of that is, is algorithmically curated today, whereas before it would have been, you know, these human recommendation systems. But it does feel like there is a lot of room for improvement, right? There's going to be an evolution here, particularly, I think you, you um, are, are touching on the fact that we need to actually analyze the content itself. Let's use computer vision or some other new emerging technologies to understand, okay, what's similar about these specific assets rather than just going off of the user behavior, the metadata signals, which is maybe a traditional way of thinking about it. So um, that certainly resonates. And I, I hope we'll see some improvements there in the future. That's right. Yeah, TikTok has done a good job, I think, of kind of a, a friction-free uh, method of discovery. They make it really easy to discover new content. You can get lost there. But they have an advantage because it's, it's such short form. So they get exactly. a lot of signals that they can data mine. Um, but yeah, I, I'm disappointed in like, you know, some of the other ones that tend to age up people or, or push people to the extremes, their algorithms. Um, you know, there's a lot that's been written about that, you mm -hmm. know, whether it's Facebook or, or other platforms. And, and um, 
yeah, I think we could do a better job of helping people expand their horizons without, um, without you know, making, making people's attitudes and views uh, more extreme. Uh, we, we haven't done a good job of that as an industry, and I think there's, there's a lot of opportunity there. Big time. Teresa, where can people find out more about you and more about Spherix? So for Spherix, it's spherix.com. And for me, the best place is probably LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a delight. It's been a lot of fun to talk with you about your journey all the way from U.S. Army to working in big companies, starting you know, these awesome uh, startups, really excited for the future of Spherix and navigating these awesome you know, problems at the intersection of, of tech and media. That's always like my favorite thing to talk about and getting your, your input on the streaming wars. So thank you for your time and thanks for sharing your perspective. Thank you, James. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.